Uh, and in fact, some people walk around in police uniforms. They, you know, former police officers who now work in policing, you know, major part of, of Home Office policy is policing. They still walk around um, in much the same way as uh, people who work for the Ministry of Defence walk around in uniforms, former military people. So hello and welcome to the Still We Rise podcast. I'm your host Nathan and we're thrilled to be back. After the summer break, the Tory party leadership candidates are still at it. Rishi Sunak, who launched his leadership bid with a video celebrating his proud immigrant background, wants to make the definition of who qualifies as an asylum seeker more narrow. This, of course, is being done whilst the whilst Britain is still a a signatory to the Refugee Convention. His leadership rival, Liz Truss, wants to expand the Rwanda scheme and deport channel migrants to more countries. So is it really possible that the next Prime Minister will ask their Home Secretary to draw up even more draconian policy? We will, of course, follow the policy changes closely in the autumn and into the winter. And today, we're taking a deep dive into the Home Office under Priti Patel. For months, former Home Office staffer and now journalist Nicola Kelly and her colleague Jack Schenker have been looking at what's going on in the Home Office and how it became the department it is today. Their article was published in Tortoise last week, titled The Hostile Environment Inside the Home Office, and I'm pleased to say Nicola Kelly joins us now. So welcome, Nicola. Hi, lovely to be here. No, it's a pleasure to to have you on. So tell us, how how do you end up working at, at the home office? Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those really curious places where it's got this reputation. And I mean, going to work there, you're, you're putting your reputation on the line because there's all manner of interpretations of people who, who work for the home office. Mm, I mean, great question. I came from the Foreign Office. Uh, I was posted to Brussels. Uh, I spent some time in Istanbul working with the Syrian National Coalition. Uh, And I spent time in Rome, in France and elsewhere. And the Foreign Office is a very different department. It's very outward facing. It's all about warm bilateral and multilateral relations. And I had done a number of back to back overseas postings. So I had to come back to the UK and I was seconded over to the home office in what was promised to be, uh, you know, kind of international role, uh, working still on Syria, working on a number of different policy areas that I'd already covered. So it was going to be a great opportunity for me. So that was the reason why I took the job. Uh, it was quite different to, uh, to that. Uh, my first impressions uh, couldn't have been more different to what I understood my role was going to be. Mm. Um, I was there in 2014 in the press office and I worked on the immigration and security desk. So this is uh, under, this is under Theresa May, is it? Exactly. Yeah. So it was the height of the hostile environment. The go home vans had been circulating not that long before I joined. Mm. Uh, there were lots of different policies around sort of combating sham marriages, a big 
debacle around student visas, um, the net migration targets had been announced by David Cameron and Theresa May to get them down to the tens of thousands, a target that was always going to be impossible. Mm. And yeah, I joined I joined at that time. Um, I wasn't there that long. Right. <laughs> I was there for a year, just under a year. Um, ultimately, it was that experience that uh, made me realise that I didn't want to work with journalists. I wanted to be a journalist and I wanted to report on these policies, on, on what I was working on and firefighting day to day. Right. I mean, that's that's an interesting journey that you've had there from the foreign office to the home office. What, what do you think the, the key differences in the culture of the foreign office and what you found at the home office was? A number of different things. The people are completely different at the Home Office. The Home Office is kind of by its nature incredibly defensive. It is shrouded in secrecy Mm. and it has to protect its Home Secretary, its ministers, its policies. And it is every day firefighting and trying to sort of combat the negative image or reputation that it's got. The Foreign Office, by contrast, is has to be outward facing. It's external, you know, it's external, you're working all around the world. Mm. Um, you have to be engaged in what's going on. You can't just hunker down and close ranks in the same way as they do at the Home Office. So by its nature, the culture is incredibly different because of the policies that, that people are working on. Mm. That in turn attracts completely different people to the department. So the people that I was working with at the Foreign Office spoke languages. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were very politically engaged, culturally engaged, uh, have probably lived in other countries before that mm-hmm. particular posting. In the Home Office, uh, it was very different. People hadn't often, that I met anyway, hadn't lived abroad, probably didn't speak languages and didn't have quite such an awareness of the, the world around them. So it wasn't quite as in keeping with my interests and uh, my ethics and morals, let's say. Right. So it's not really outward looking in, in the way that you had imagined. So let's let's dive straight into your your investigation into the Home Office. So you've spent a couple of months with Jack Schenker looking at um, looking at the Home Office. So you say it's too slow, too bureaucratic, too defensive and too hard hearted. Tell us in turn why you characterize it in this way. It's too slow and too bureaucratic, and I guess they're kind of part and parcel of the same thing. Um, I mean, the Home Office figures released yesterday showed that there's a an enormous backlog, mm. uh, which 117,000 odd asylum cases still waiting for an initial decision. And the majority of those, I don't have the figures to hand, but the majority of those have been waiting for over six months. The backlog is enormous in part because they recruit caseworkers who are inexperienced um, and who occasionally lack motivation. Um, so the processes from the very beginning stages are, are slow and bureaucratic. It's a big clunky archaic machine with you know over 30 thousand people working there it's an enormous department with sort of tentacles all over the uk um you know border force it used to work in prisons um it has a huge huge remit um and it's very broad uh very broad 
coverage of different policy areas. Um, it's defensive, as I say, because of the, the nature of what they do. Uh, you know, the Home secretaries and ministers and officials need to be firefighting because, as Amber Rudd said in the piece, these issues just come at you and they come at you really fast. Mm. Um, and, you know, you certainly find that in press office, essentially the kind of front line of the department. You, you do come across those fires to fight on a day-to-day basis. Um, one person told me there's a sense that you never really know what's around the corner, that you're always waiting for the next wind rush. And mm. that's part of everyday parlance now in the Home Office. You know, what will the next wind rush be? So there's a sense that uh, I think in part because there's little to no interaction that I've ever seen between the Home Secretary, ministers, officials and asylum seekers and refugees refugees Mm. i would be very hard pushed to name an example of a photo opportunity uh, a quote anything that i've seen uh, of a minister um understanding how their policies affect real people on the ground and going out and visiting uh, you know anybody other than border force officials in in dover for example Mm. so yeah i think without speaking to real people about how their policies affect them it's quite easy to be uh hard-hearted and uh it's really important i think to to speak to those people to to sort of soften yeah in terms of it being slow i i think our listeners will be will find it extraordinary that over 117,000 people have been waiting for an initial decision for over 6 months why is that not a priority, do you think? Mm. The Home Office always says it's because of COVID. You know, the backlog has mounted uh, because of COVID. Actually, what we find when we look at reports from the ICIBI and many others mm. is that the recruitment of caseworkers or decision makers uh, mm. isn't adequate. So they're recruiting people who have no skills or knowledge of the asylum system for a start they're not then training them up adequately so people are promised 23 weeks uh, fully paid training nobody ever really gets that Mm. and often people say caseworkers and decision makers i speak to say that they're essentially left to their own devices after you know a couple of days of shadowing a senior caseworker Um, and there's nothing done in terms of retention either so yeah, because of because of this lack of training and because of this, um, you know, very tricky environment to work in, very sales focused, uh, targets driven, and very stressful environment. People tend to leave, so there's a really high turnover. So because of that, at the very sort of bottom rung or the first step in the asylum process, mm. there that's already a major hurdle. And this backlog just increases and increases. But instead of resourcing the asylum system adequately, the Home Office doesn't. It focuses instead on putting its money, its efforts <laughs> into uh, presentational policies like Rwanda. And I imagine that this this really impacts the quality of the decisions that are made by people who are inadequately trained. And who, who yeah. on the face of it, from what you say, it appears that they're they're not really happy at the department either because of, yeah. of the turnover. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see that they make incorrect decisions, you know, very regularly. So 76% of 
of initial asylum claims are accepted and then over half of of those decisions are overturned on appeal if somebody's been rejected so by its own standards by the home office's own standards uh, and guidance mm. most of the people that it accepts are genuine refugees yeah did did your sources tell you why for example the home secretary won't ever go and meet a group of asylum seekers and actually speak to them why why they- are they so hard hearted they didn't. <laughs> they they didn't, said right. uh, the the main things I heard were about Priti Patel herself. So mm. uh, very interesting um, sort of details about how she works, uh, her day to day, the day to day running of her office, and probably the most interesting thing that someone said to me was even after a 12, 14, 16 hour day, mm-hmm. the mask never slips. She never. Uh, cracks her image never cracks she's the kind of ultimate politician Um, and this source said that her mannerisms are very deliberate and constructed exactly as you see on tv it's Mm. never any different in person even once you've worked you know very closely with someone for for months and sometimes years that that never changes it's never more personal than that and her office reflects that uh, that image. So she has uh, a very uh, sort of standard desk of you know, a big, heavy mahogany desk, mm-hmm. two union jacks behind it. And there's a whiteboard that sits in front of her mm-hmm. with her priorities. And there's about 20, 25 priorities. And top of that list says, number one, stop the small boat crossings. And then there's things like um, cutting crime and all the kind of you know normal home office policies will be in there as well. And then Windrush compensation payments are, are quite far down that list. Uh, and the other thing I heard that I think is quite interesting is uh, one person who worked very closely with her said that they would drop updates into Pretty Patel's office, something like a deportation flight that had gone wrong or a raid that had gone wrong. Mm-hmm. drop in regular updates to her office, run back to their desk and wait for an explosion was the direct quote. They would wait for her to come out uh, filled with rage that something had gone wrong and that this was likely going to make headlines again. I mean, it's 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 extraordinary that there's so much, there's so much, it, it just feels so chaotic the way that the the home office works. So so let's look in particular at at the Rwanda policy. What did you learn about how this policy was constructed? The Rwanda policy was led initially out of the Foreign Office and number 10, but led by the Foreign Office. They pulled together a shortlist of about 30 countries. They approached a number of these countries, uh, initially countries like Brazil and North Macedonia and others who said, no, they weren't interested in a deal. Predominantly African countries said that they would be interested in uh, in a deal. Mm. So they began to talk. Um, Ghana, Nigeria and others were interested. And of course, Rwanda. Um, it was... Uh, yeah, then led out of the Home Office. So it was passed on to the Home Office once that deal with Rwanda had been made. And number 10 worked closely with the Home Office. Um, It was received pretty badly from uh, very high up uh, among officials in the Home Office. Um, And actually resistance groups have 
have cropped up as a result. So there's a resistance group called Our Home Office, um, which started as a Twitter account. Um, and yeah, it's essentially people sort of resisting uh, the Rwanda policy, which they say was a flashpoint for them. So, you know, people were disgruntled, they were dissatisfied with the work, they didn't necessarily agree and felt morally compromised on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. But until the Rwanda policy came up or the Rwanda deal came up, Mm -hmm. uh, nobody uh, spoke out. And now all of a sudden there's a kind of nascent resistance movement, a grassroots movement, if you like, from within the department that's uh, that's springing up uh, across the UK, not just in Marsham Street. So yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of movement, but uh, yeah, the Rwanda policy was, was a flashpoint for, for many, many people who work in the department. So this, this, this widespread um, resistance movement, do, do you think it will actually work? Because, um, as you say, Priti Patel, she's really quite combative and and really muscular. I mean, something has to give because if if the courts rule that that this is illegal, that it's not lawful, that these deportations happen, well, what do you think the response will be from the staff? Given what you've you've found out, will they implement the policy? Because she's likely to try and just push it somehow and try and make it work. Mm. I mean, one person I spoke to who's been there for almost two decades says morale is the lowest they've ever known it. And this source said, you know, it wasn't the department wasn't fit for purpose when they started almost yeah. 20 years ago. And it's even less fit for purpose now. I think that our home office and these other kind of movements have given people an outlet to be able to express their frustrations uh, and discontent with with policies like Rwanda. Mm. Um, In terms of it working, uh, I mean, if nothing else, it's an outlet uh, that I wish had been there when I was there. Um, Mm. But uh, in terms of the the policy actually taking off, as it were, um, I don't... uh, I I feel differently now to how I felt uh, before that grounded flight, which was when I initially heard about it, I was you know as shocked as anybody. Mm. Um, it's clearly presentational. I thought and probably still think in many ways that it will be one flight potentially. I can't see there being any more than maybe a handful of people, and it will be done purely as a photo opportunity. I can see Pretty Patel there. Um, I can see senior officials there as a photo opportunity watching the flight take off. Um, I can't see it going much further than that, but I could be very wrong. I mean, it's I, I what I what I fail to understand about all of this is that given Windrush, right, and Wendy Williams's findings, which bits of the Windrush lessons learned review are actually being implemented in the Home Office? Because she, she, Wendy Williams, recommended that they look at the face before the case. And how is it that they come up with this type of policy if they're really implementing those recommendations from Wendy Williams? There is no face behind the case. This is a, this is another thing that they they wanted to implement as part of asylum processing hmm. that they haven't done. Um, I think it's pretty striking about the Windrush compensation payments being really low down on Pretty Patel's, you know, priority list in her office. Yeah. And people who who work really closely on it told me that's actually no 
great surprise, but it's very good to have confirmation that it's, uh, you know, so so unimportant to her or so far down her list of priorities. Um, and I suppose it's because there's there's so many other priorities to her. It's, it's a constant onslaught of, mm. uh, of new plans. You know, most recently, just today, uh, or announced yesterday, was the you know fast tracking of Albanian failed Albanian asylum seekers? Um, you know, obviously Rwanda sort of ticks ticks away. Um, you know, it's a really fast pace and it's absolutely relentless. So, you know, these reviews come out, um, reports come out regularly, but very little is done to act on them. Hmm. You spoke before about um, your time at the Foreign Office and how it was more outward looking and the people that you worked with there were were different because of their, their world experience. Do you, do you believe that the Home Office's policy direction, do the people who work there believe that it reflects public opinion? Because for, for example, Brexit, the taking back control uh, mm. mantra that the Leave you know, campaign had, do they think that they're reflecting the public's opinion and its beliefs by these really hard-hearted policies towards towards asylum seekers and refugees? Well, insiders told me they're serving ministers. Yeah, you know, that's their job. They're apolitical. They're impartial, and in many ways, I don't think very many people have a sort of sense of the general perceptions among the among the general public um they know it's not good they know the the department isn't very well perceived uh mm. the reputation is uh is has to be kind of like closely guarded uh, for for a reason but the policies have become more robust because they need to and yeah, there's a sense that people just need to kind of roll out those policies. Um, and what one person told me, a junior junior member of staff there who, who's been there for under a handful of years said, you know, what people say in the office is very different to what they say in the pub. In the office, they'll say, you know, they'll sort of go about their business and do, do their best, get their head down, crack mm. on with what they need to do. In the pub, they'll say, you know, obviously we know these policies are awful. They use another word, but mm. I won't use it. Mm. Uh, we know these policies aren't awful, but what else can we do? You know, there's no alternative. And when someone suggests an alternative, they'll say, well, that's not going to be palatable to ministers. So there's no point in even suggesting it. So there's a kind of sense that there's there's no real point in sticking your neck out because nothing's really going to change. So yeah, a kind of sense of, powerlessness maybe and frustration and just you know you just have to get on with the job either you get on with the job or you leave so is is there essentially a a culture of fear around pretty patel um did you know so you you spoke to a lot of insiders and those who are pretty high up like the permanent secretaries and stuff who deal with her directly do do they speak truth to power because I know Matthew Rycroft refused to sign off the Rwanda policy, but on the basis of of, of budgets. But is there that? Does she does she get that kind of robust rebuttal of some of the the excesses of her policy? 
The language I heard used was a rule of fear. And there's a very hierarchical structure, which one source told me mimics that of policing. Mm. Uh, and in fact, some people walk around in police uniforms. They, you know, former police officers who now work in policing, you know, major part of, of home office policy is policing. They still walk around um, in much the same way as uh, people who work for the Ministry of Defence walk around in uniforms, former military people, that these former police who now work on policy at the home office do the same thing. Mm. And that's very intimidating. And this all said it makes it feel like a law enforcement organisation. And you're, you're all very aware of that, you know, of people walking around wearing these uniforms. Um, but that hierarchy goes all the way to the top. And that mm. rule of fear goes all, all the way to the top. And it almost insinuates that that rule of fear comes directly from the top, from the Home Secretary herself. So, yes, there is a rule of fear. Um, and, yeah, I mean, there's 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 no two ways about it. There's a, there is a rule of fear and people either get on with it or they have to, um, you know, sort of bite their tongue or or leave as I did. Hmm. I mean, that's, that's quite remarkable. And there's this role that, that the media plays in, um, in churning out these statements that come out from the Home Office. Do you, w w what did you learn? Are, are there like very close relationships with parts of the media where they just put out what the Home Office's line is verbatim and it's almost as if it's a client relationship? There's a sense that the press office in particular, but the department as a whole, have a pretty good grip on the media, hmm. which I found really interesting. They are less concerned about journalists like me, <laughs> you know, people who write for The Guardian or work for Tortoise Media. Yeah. They're much more concerned about tabloids, um, probably also broadcast journalists as well. But... I didn't really get the impression that the media have that much of an influence in shaping policy. Mm. Uh, it's more, um, it's more trying to kill stories. And I find this on a pretty regular basis that anytime I approach the home office press office for a comment or a statement to be cleared through, through ministers, mm. um, the story is they, they try to kill the story. Either a case is very, very quickly resolved before publication, mm. or it's resolved very quickly after publication, or um, anything, any number of things can be done to try and kill a story. I, you know, they could try and pressure you uh, through editors and lawyers at The Guardian to um, you know reveal sources or to share an embargoed report before publication. Uh, I've never done that. We've never done that. Uh, my editors always back me. I'm very grateful for that. But yeah, I think I think there's a sense that if they try and kill stories or kind of control the media in a certain to a certain extent, um, they're doing their job. But I don't think there's that much concern about journalists and what we write or say but, about but them. But aren't they aren't they concerned about what what the Daily Mail will write? Isn't there a sense there that if the Daily Mail starts writing articles which are, you know, don't favour what the Home Office is doing. So say if they were more compassionate to refugees who are arriving on the channel, mm -hmm. the, the Daily Mail would write 
headlines which would make them jump at the Home Office, wouldn't they? So it it mm. does sort of feel like they do follow what what the male wants. Did you get a sense that that that's true? Yes, I mean, there's this. It goes back to this Daily Mail test, mm. which is you know foremost in people's minds when with you know on a day to day basis with every correspondence that you know a story could end up on the front page of the mail so there is definitely more concern about tabloids than broadsheets or broadcast um but i don't think there's that much concern about a loss of control in terms of a story um i think they have a very good grasp of what the next scandal might be and how to manage that Mm, right so let's let's move on now to to some other stories that you've been breaking nicola there there is this whole move in the home office towards electronic tagging talk to us about about what you found out about two weeks ago i broke a story in The Guardian about facial recognition smartwatches. And it was one of those stories that when you hear about it, you pause and then just say, what? Mm. You know, it's really difficult to comprehend um, quite how Orwellian that is. It's an extension of the tools and the tech the Home Office already used to survey migrants on a day-to-day basis. So, yeah, as you say, ankle tags, uh, GPS ankle tags. They used to be radio frequency tags. They're now 24-hour location tracking of asylum seekers. This story came up and somebody mentioned it to me. It was a, a tip mm. that these this contract had been awarded to a company called Buddy Limited a British tech firm for six million pounds due to be rolled out in the autumn. And they would be smartwatches that would require uh, migrant groups. It says in the Home Office's own documents uh, that it's those subject to immigration control. So it's migrant groups. It's not necessarily, you know, one group and not the other. It's broadly those under immigration control will have to wear these watches and scan their faces up to five times a day. So, so that, you know, when you say immigration control, just so our listeners are, are really clear about this, could that apply to anybody who's here on a visa? Because by definition, their time here is limited. So if they've got, say, a 30-month visa, they are under immigration control, aren't they? They don't differentiate. They say foreign national offenders publicly right but in their own documents they say those subject to immigration controls so they don't differentiate between groups visas anything like that uh yeah i mean even scarier in that regard but yes the location the name the date of birth uh they say on these documents will be stored for up to six years uh no migrant will know how that information is used Uh, against them in terms of making a decision on a claim or uh, any number of other things. Uh, And it's not just that information that could be stored. These smartwatches are, as we all know, very sophisticated, very intrusive, Mm. and they can measure any number of other things. So there's a lot more data than just the location, name, date of birth of, of somebody who's checking in five times a day. 
It it does make you wonder what's what's driving that. Have you have you had a look at at figures of say people who abscond? How how high are those figures, and is this what partly drives that? In that there are a lot of if if you read the the right wing right leaning media, they say that there there's very few deportations of say people whose asylum claims fail. Is that what's driving this? Ostensibly, it's about people who abscond, but there are so many different tools and tech used against uh, asylum seekers or migrant groups broadly. So mm. there's things, obviously, we know about ankle tags. Um, you know, that's been sort of widely reported quite recently. But there's also things like social media monitoring um, by local authorities. There's phone tapping of people in immigration detention centers. Um yeah, I mean, the information can be taken from anywhere. Data is recorded, people are tracked, and they might not know they're being tracked. And as far um, as you know, Nicola, is is all of this legal? Like they're they're free. They're this is above the law. They they're free to do this and do it legally. I don't think it is legal. Um, it's it seems unlawful, doesn't it? Hmm. But. Uh, it is just another way that people are being surveyed and nobody holds the Home Office to account. Everything's done very cloak and dagger. A contract is awarded, you know, multi-million pound contracts are awarded to private tech companies or private companies uh, on a very regular basis. Um, and until somebody puts in a freedom of information request or uh, requests access to other documents, nobody will ever know. I mean that's that's remarkable, and you've you've also been reporting on um, on Afghanistan, and we we saw earlier in the year uh, Britain's attempts to to airlift um, a lot of people and and bring them here to safety. But there's a, there's a lot of people who who remained back in Afghanistan, and we've now got some twenty thousand people who are stuck in hotels for, for over a year. What, what have you found out about what those people's situation is going to be like? Oh, how long are they going to be staying in hotels for? I've been speaking to people in Afghanistan more so than in the UK. Mm. The people who've been left behind, um, well, I mean, they're terrified. They live in fear of their lives. They are regularly... Um, is regularly found where they are. They can be located very easily by the Taliban. Uh, one source I spoke to was taken uh, and beaten by the Taliban. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people are killed, disappeared. So they're living in fear of their lives. A lot of those people, I'm doing a big cross-border investigation with Lighthouse Reports mm -hmm. and a journalist called May Bullman, uh, who used to be at The Independent at the moment. And yeah, we're finding that as part of the Arab scheme, which was the which is for sort of former interpreters and security guards and people who work directly for the British government and the British military, mm. uh, they have been accepted onto these programs for relocation to the UK, but they still haven't been transferred. So they've been waiting for over a year now uh, in hiding, um, often with their families, uh, young children, and uh, the British government have promised something that they haven't delivered. They've now started up another program called the ACRS program, mm -hmm. um, which is for citizens broadly. Uh, it includes people like uh, lecturers, academics, 
uh, people who work for the British Council and others, um, it, you can't apply for that scheme. There's only an expression of interest window that's been opened up. So you can log your details. Um, and I did a story relatively recently about information being leaked mm. uh, about someone. And we know how dangerous that is when someone's location is leaked, their name, uh, their phone number, email address, all of their contact details, uh, that is you know, potentially life-threatening. So yeah, the British government, um, with both of those schemes have promised things that they haven't delivered. In terms of Afghans who are in hotels, um, I I go to Napier Barracks relatively recently. Um, I'm in contact with uh, an Afghan man who is there. Um, people are only supposed to be held at Napier Barracks for 90 days. He's been there for a couple of months now. Um, and uh, I also have spoken to Afghans who've been in hotels. People are left to languish there, um, both in places like Napier Barracks, but also in hotels for months and months at a time. Now, I spoke to somebody who's been in a hotel for well over a year and a half. I know there are people who've, who could be there for even longer than that. Mm-hmm. Um, the conditions are uh, terrible. Um, you know, I know that there's uh, sort of views about those hotels and how they're being used, but the conditions aren't great um, at all. Um, it's really um, confining, uh, particularly for young children, um, and nobody's ever given any updates or information on their case. So, yeah, there's a sense that time could just go on indefinitely in those hotels or in those uh, institutions like Napier. Goodness, it it feels like there are lots of people who've who've come to this country to to seek safety and sanctuary who are just being left in limbo and it then begs the question is is the home office fit for purpose from all of all of the investigative work that you've done and all of the sources that you've talked to what conclusion do those people come to do they think that this department is too big and needs to be broken up so that it works far much more efficiently and recognizes the humanity of the people who who come here to seek sanctuary. I think there's no sense really of where the department's going to go, but everybody knows, and Priti Patel herself regularly says, uh, the asylum system in particular yeah. is broken. But the question is, how did it break? Yeah, and. It's just it's becoming worse and worse. These these policies are getting more and more, you know, robust as they would like to see it, or strong. They're being very tough on uh, on immigration, uh, UK immigration and asylum. Mm. But uh, it's not fit for purpose in terms of the recruitment of the people um, at every level. You know, officials working in Marsham Street, people working within the asylum system, and others. Um, uh, its policies aren't fit for purpose. Uh, they're regularly found wanting, and uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's no there's no real sense of where the department's going to go. So I can't I can't really say whether it will be broken up or what will happen in the future. But I think everybody knows, including the Home Secretary herself, that it's not fit for purpose. It's broken at every level, mm. uh, and much needs to be done to to make that better and to improve the lives uh, of those who come to this country. Yeah, and and finally, Nicola, um, and it's been a really fascinating conversation with you and um, congratulations on uh, 
really great story that you've you've put out there. Um, what do you think will happen? Uh, look into your crystal ball. You you mentioned before that you think Suella Braverman will become the Home Secretary. What sort of direction do you think she'll take this Home Office in, given all that you know and what all of your sources have told you? She's Attorney General at the moment. Um, not that much is known about her. I think there's space for a profile about Suella Braverman. Mm. Uh, she's an interesting character who we know has backed Rwanda Lots of uh, critics say that she uh, might be even tougher uh, on on asylum seekers and other migrant groups. Mm. Um, it looks I don't want to be cynical or pessimistic because I like to I am an optimist and I like to try and remain positive. But it does look like the situation for those coming to our shores it's only going to get worse mm. but to end to end on a positive much is being done by people internally and i think that's the the sort of takeaway note from from the tortoise piece mm. and from from contacts who work at the home office now across the uk not just in marsham street people are speaking out like never before and that really gives me heart because something needs to be done from inside the department because it closes ranks because it's so defensive and shrouded in secrecy something needs to be done from inside to try to break the status quo and to try and uh, break down some of these policies uh, before they happen yeah no on that optimistic positive note about all of the work that people inside are doing to try and end read some of these really grave policies that are developed in there. No, thank you so much for speaking to us. Pleasure. Thank you. So thank you to Nicola for that rather jarring insight. She made visible the dysfunction and the toxic culture that pervades the home office from the rule of fear that emanates from Pretty Patel's office and the the tangible sense of powerlessness that civil servants feel, leaving them morally compromised. Imagine having to work and, and exist in an environment where you have two choices. You dare not speak up or you have to leave your job. And the irony won't be lost in you that people who seek safety here in Britain are fleeing from exactly this sort of tyranny. It's all very Orwellian, isn't it? It's clear to me from everything that Nicola said that the Home Office is not fit for purpose, that you now have a movement of staff of civil servants who are organizing amongst themselves to push back against the cruelty and have started tweeting anonymously about it as indicative of the very low morale that Nicola exposed. Granted, Pretty Patel always admits that the asylum system is broken. We all know that, but it seems to me that it's the Home Office that's broken. Incredibly, the cruelty of the Rwanda policy of leaving people in limbo in Napier barracks and in hotels for over a year, failing to extract and provide safe passage for Afghans who worked for the British government. This is, from everything that we've heard today, is not a glitch in the system. It is the system. This is a system that needs to be broken up. 
It reminds me of the words of that American intellectual W.E.B. Dubois, who so poignantly and succinctly pointed out that a system cannot fail those it was never meant to protect. As ever, if you haven't already, please subscribe, follow and share this episode. Our next episode will come shortly after the High Court ruling on the legality of the Rwanda policy. This case is being heard in London on September the 5th. So until then, thanks so much for listening and goodbye.